New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, Osprey Ariel Lake, suggests that in these perilous times, one of the most important things we can do is make a stand for protecting our Earth and giving voice to our stories and needs. There are hundreds and thousands of ways to do this, and each person must find his or her own way to contribute. We can each ask ourselves, what is the light I offer, the flame that is mine alone to give? Be assured that each voice is a rivulet, adding to the momentum of regenerating the world back to health. Osprey Oriel Lake is the founder and director of the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, where she is working nationally and internationally with grassroots leaders, policymakers, business people, and scientists to promote resilient communities and foster a post-carbon energy future, while also addressing societal transformation. These are no small things. <laughs> she is an advisor to the International Eco-Cities Framework and Standards Initiative, an international advocate for Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, and has traveled to five continents studying ancient and modern cultures while making presentations at international conferences and universities. In addition to her advocacy work, she is a bronze sculptor and author of Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature, which is a winner of the 2011 Nautilus Book Award. Join us for the next hour as we explore how nature can transform human perspective and why women's leadership is key to climate change solutions with our guest, Osprey Oriel Lake. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Osprey, welcome. Thank you so much. I first would like to talk about where we are right now. You you have an overview of where we've come from and an, and look to the future of where we might be going. But let's say, where are we right now? Well, it's it's such a remarkable time, really. And I look at it as we're at a crossroads. We're really at a crossroads, both as a species and as a planet. And I think it's quite a point for humans to understand the power we have of choice and really where we're going to go in these next immediate years. I mean, we can name the fact that we know 200 
species every day is going extinct. We can we have our list, our litany here of climate change and deforestation, all these things that are are very daunting to face. Um, and I think it's a time where individual people are standing up and finding out what's most important to them and really learning how to um, take back our country, lift up democracy. We've seen, the, of course, the Occupy movement spread across the country and around the world. So I think that this is quite a time emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And so a lot of my work, whether it's through my artwork or my writing or my advocacy work, is really based upon actually a very deep understanding that we're at this crossroad. Well, let's talk about your artwork a little bit. Um, as an artist, how does this inform your work in, in climate change? Well, it, I've kind of gone on an interesting journey for many, many years. Um, I've focused on narratives, whether they're in story form or image form, with this deep belief and, and experience, and I still hold that to be true, that uh one of the things that's so important to human beings is our narrative and the images that we place in our mind every day and our imagination. So if we have images and stories that focus on the beauty of nature, on the wisdom of the natural cycles and the ecosystems, that that will affect us and hopefully bring us to a point where we want to honor and respect nature and live in harmony with nature. So many, many years I've put into images and stories about the beauty and wisdom of nature and the power of this 4.5 billion year evolution of the earth. Um, and then in the last few years, I think like a lot of people, I've become extremely concerned about what is going on with uh, the climate crisis. And I do have a background in environmental studies, and so in the last few years, um, all that work that I've put into that narrative is now really sort of hitting the ground in the form of the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus and taking a lot of time to do advocacy work around rights of nature and supporting on-the-ground projects in Africa and India where women are having a lot of trouble because of climate change already. Um, and so I do a lot of practical work in that sense. Um, as any nonprofit organization, but behind it is really this deep sense that we need to change our narrative. So that's really how the arts has informed my advocacy work at this point. So in talking about in changing the narrative, um, that takes us to the power of story. And why is telling a new story important for us today? Well, I think it goes back much further, but let's just start with the Industrial Revolution and all the you know, positive things that came from that um, transformation in our human presence on the earth, uh, which brought us all kinds of things. I mean, last week I needed to go to the dentist, and I'll tell you, I'm really glad that there's modern-day medicine for such moments when your tooth is aching. So, um, you know, I don't think these things are good or bad. I think like a lot of things in our human story, it's a mixed bag, and we need to really always evaluate and be vigilant about what we value and what we care about. And so I think the story that we've been in a, for a long time has been one of disconnection from nature. And I think um, as any civilization or people derive their foundations separate from nature, they in time won't be sustainable. And I think that's what we face right now is that so many people, you know, over half the world's population now lives in urban environments, mostly disconnected from the natural world. And I think it's very difficult to care for the forests and the rivers and the mountains and the wildlife when they're not part of your daily experience. 
And I think that's part of our story that has gone awry. And I would add to that also that, um, and I very much like the work of Rianne Eisler, who has done a beautiful analysis of uh, dominator societies versus partnership models of society. And I think there's a real truth in that. For a very long time, thousands of years, we've lived in a dominator model, whether it's humans over nature or men over women or light-colored people, skinned people over dark-skinned people. I think that— Or women over men, even— it can be any 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 form any form of um, a hierarchy in which people and the earth and all living creatures are mm-hmm. not treated equally in a circle. You know, it's more like seeing a pyramid versus a circle. And I think we need to come into the time of the circle and the spiral where we are really sharing uh, power and sharing decision making. Osprey, when you say uh, the story that doesn't reflect our connection with nature, in in your book you have this extraordinary piece about a, it might have been a print, but it, I, I'm not sure how it appeared, but it was a commercial after the Katrina, that terrible um, hurricane that hit dead on uh, New Orleans. And um, the commercial says, um, here, here's a quote from it, how do you deal with an enemy that has no government, no money, trail, no qualms about killing women and children? The answer is, the enemy is Mother Nature. And it goes on to say, it's time we started fighting back. So this is one of the images. This is part of that old story that you're talking about that's fed to us all the time about we've got to dominate Mother Nature as if we could. And we've got to, um, and it's, it's our enemy, that the natural world is our enemy. Yes, I think that, you know, either the natural world is our enemy or in some cases is a business. Um, and, you know, that's to be divided up and we're supposed to, you know, extract and exploit and sell all the bits and pieces of nature. Um, so I think both, those, that's part of the old story, the old paradigm is, again, this distance from the natural world. And I think it's made us um, a, a people that are very empty inside on a certain level. And um, I, I think that part of the danger of this time and the transformation, which is the exciting part of this time, is that as we spell out this old story, which we can clearly see is not working um, to our great peril, that you know, we begin to ask deeper questions about, you know, why are we living this way where we're, we're over-consuming? And why are we so caught up in a culture that is trying to sell us everything every day all the time and we have the sense that we need to collect stuff and have more things? And I think that part of it, I don't think it's the only component, but I think part of it is that when we're disconnected from the beauty and power and wisdom of the natural world and the fact that we are nature and we're part of this great evolutionary story of the earth and the great cosmos, that that emptiness needs to be fed. It's like a hollow inside our soul. And one of the ways that it is um, falsely being fed is through consumerism. You know, if I get the car, if I get the house, if I get the new shoes, I'm going to fill myself up with stuff. And then I won't feel this emptiness. And again, I don't think it's the only component, but I think it's important to understand that when we do take time to walk in the forest or in the garden or be by the river or watch a sunset, that is so fulfilling that 
to me, it's far better than a pair of new shoes. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that we need to re-story and share with our children. Um, I'll just give one more example. The um, wonderful author and environmentalist Paul Hawken gives a, a, cites a really interesting study in which you can ask children or adults to name hundreds and hundreds of uh, brand names or logos. You know, if they see the image, they know what it is. Um, and at the same time, if you ask them to walk right outside the front door in their neighborhood and just name 10 plant species, most people can't do that. So, you know, how do we change a story where we know the plants outside our front door and watch them in their cycles and hear the birds singing in the morning out our window and know the name of that bird and where that bird comes from and its story and how that can be a place that fills us up. I think that's something that we're looking at in this new story. I'm just reminded of an incident that just happened. I was driving up to Ukiah from Santa Rosa, and I noticed off on the... um, in the sky, this black cloud, but it was rising up instead of going down, and it seemed to be moving in a way that it was changing shape a lot, and and, and it wasn't smoke. It wasn't, I could see that it wasn't smoke, and I'm wondering now, I'm trying to think UFOs, you know, I mean, I'm just, my mind is trying to categorize it. And I, as soon as I can, I, I think I'm going to pull off, and I'm going to really take a bit better look at this. And in doing that, I noticed all these other cars had pulled off too, and what it was was flocks of starling, and they were making these beautiful figures in the sky, and people were stopping their cars. It was just wonderful. I'll say more about that story in just a moment. I'm here with Osprey Oriel Lake, and she's the author of Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. here with Osprey Oriel Lake, and she's the author of Uprising for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, OspreyAriellake.com. And she spells that Osprey, like the bird, O-S-P-R-E-Y, Oriel, O-R-I-E-L-L-E, Lake.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. In the last segment, I was mentioning people pulling off the road, so I wasn't the only one noticing this phenomenon of this dark, cloud-like 
configuration going on in the sky. And I was so pleased to see that others noticed it too. And they they were pulling out their binoculars and looking. And, and we were all just very excited about seeing this natural phenomena uh, that happens sometimes at sunset with these thousands, maybe millions of birds that fly in these wonderful uh, different patterns that they make in the sky before they settle down for the night. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, that's such a beautiful description. I mean, they it, uh, there's an unusual word for that, and I don't think I'm going to get it right, but it has in its root murmur. It's a murmur. There, it, It's... Um, I'll have to look it up, but specifically around starlings, when they're doing that, they're flying in those unusual patterns and creating all these different configurations. It actually has a wonderful poetic word that it's called. It has something like murmur in it, and uh, it's quite amazing to see. I, I have seen that before with starlings, and it is Breathtaking. Breathtaking. Now, when when we're talking about the new story and we're talking about connecting with nature, it watching TV and there are some wonderful shows that that really take us into some incredible detail of of wildness of different animals or plants or under the oceans. But does that take the place of being out in nature? I don't think it ever can, and I agree with you. I think that um, those nature programs and other programs are are quite educational and can be an incredible introduction to people learning about the natural world. And sometimes that can be the only access. So I, I really am someone who advocates for those programs and thinks they're a very good idea. However, it can't be a substitute. I mean, no matter how much we see a program about the ocean, it will never take the place on screen. Um, for going to the water and putting your feet into the ocean tide and smelling the air and seeing all the wildlife that is there. I think that one of the things that we need to remember as modern-day people who are very hooked into technology, which also I like all my clever devices too, um, and, and have a lot of these different lifestyles than people two or 300 years ago, um, is that we are also animals, we have to remember that we are animals and we relate to our world through our senses. And it's a sensate world. So if we only experience the ocean or wildlife or a river or forest on television, we're not utilizing all of our senses. And therefore, we're not really having a full-bodied experience of the forest or of the river or of the mountain. And I think many different kinds of information come to us. There's different ways of knowing. It's not just about our brain. There are different ways of knowing. And I think we need to actually be in the natural world and get our toes wet and, you know, have the smells come into our body to really understand our place um, in creation, understand our place in the natural world and develop not only an understanding but an appreciation and respect. We've done, uh, here at New Dimensions, we've done many programs on in ecology and the environment. And one program series we call Deep Ecology for the 21st Century, which was um, George Sessions helped us with that, and we had wonderful people on. And Michael was main host of it, and he would um, ask the question of all these deep ecologists through, the, through time, 
What first turned them on to be doing what they're doing today and they're devoting their entire time now for ecology and and the environment and climate and each one of them had some story to tell of themselves when they were small, when they were a child, a kid, and they connected with nature in some way. And they, they just lit up. Every time Michael would ask a question, they would just light up to tell the story of, of their being a kid. So, Osprey, can you tell us what you... What is the importance of children connecting with nature? What do you can you tell us about that? Well, I think it's probably one of the most important things children could ever do, and I so celebrate um, educators who dedicate their time to making sure that children have that opportunity. Um, I'm sure you've uh, see the book by uh, Richard Louv, the the last child in the woods. And I, that's a deeply moving book that I think speaks to this topic quite well. Um, you know, it's not just that it's a really good idea for children to to be in nature, to be in the woods, um, to have time with animals. It's necessary for their well-being. And I think that's something that a lot of scientists are looking at now. We were talking earlier about E.O. Wilson and the biothelia biophilia thesis in which, you know, we're just seeing scientists coming out across the board saying that, you know, having this disconnection from nature is not good for our well-being and that we we need that. Um, there's a couple of studies I thought were very interesting about how in hospitals, when a patient who's recovering has a window facing nature like a park or a tree, their recovery time is actually faster than the patients who are, you know, have a window just facing a wall or no window at all. Isn't that fascinating? You have a piece in your book where you, you talk about taking children from the inner city, maybe Oakland or San Francisco, out to um, Death Valley, to the desert, yes. and they experience for the first time really seeing a full sky of, of stars that was such an exciting uh, journey, uh, taking these young people. I um, Some time back, I uh, led a lot of wilderness courses, and one of them was taking um, some inner-city kids out, as you say, to, to Death Valley. And uh, that one night that you're speaking of, and I had several experiences, but this one night was so special because I heard all of the young people just staying up all night, looking at the stars, pointing out the stars. And it made me reflect again upon how it's very possible for people living in cities all their life, unless they go on a journey out to the wilderness or out to the wild or out to the desert, really never see a full night sky for a long period of time. And I think that's actually influenced us not in a good way as modern-day people because there's something about being out under the stars and seeing the measure that that presents us, that profound fact that we are on a living planet in this vast universe and the visceral experience. Maybe we read it in a book. That is not the same thing as you know, laying on your back, looking up at the night sky and contemplating and taking a moment to realize, wow, we're on this spaceship Earth, as, as Bucky Fuller uh, always was famous to say. And how does that affect us and our actions and our choices when we remember that we're part and particle of this great, mysterious, numinous journey called life? And I think the stars give us that. And when we don't have that, 
our experience as a human being is actually diminished. I think we actually need the measure of seeing the stars to remember where we are, why we're here, what we're doing here in this truly amazing miracle called life. And for those of us who have had that experience of seeing that numinous sky, seeing it without other lights, um, dimming it, those if we think that the night sky is what we see in a city and the few very bright stars that we see but are not nearly representing the fullness of that night sky that you would see in a mountaintop or on a desert. And I, I, I recall seeing it, and, and it, it almost seems like a solid, I want to say bed, but a solid curtain of stars. It, if you kind of dim your focus a little bit, it almost seems like there's no space between the stars. There are so many. There are so many. It's just, it's breathtaking. And um, I just encourage anybody who hasn't had that opportunity to, to make so in their life because it it's truly a um, life-changing experience. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, it's also um, very important, you know, at all ages, that we continue to welcome opportunities for this awe and wonder of the natural world and the great cosmos. Um, it's not something that's just meant for kids. It's something that we need to renew. Um, mm-hmm. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't ask ourselves to take one shower a week or one shower a month and expect to stay clean. You got to keep showering. And it's the same thing, you know, to stay connected to the earth mother, to stay connected to the natural rhythms, to remember who we are as people of this earth. It's something to renew, 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 and, and continue to have that sense of awe and wonder. You've taken many vision quests or many treks into the wilderness, and um, one in particular you mentioned in your book, and I, I just loved um, your description of it, and that was going to, to a creek in Mendocino County, I think, and it, you, call, you named it Vision Creek. Can you tell about that experience? Well, it was when I was quite young, and I had been reading a lot of uh, spiritual texts in my own search for what is life about and, you know, being, you know, in my in my late teens and, and trying to wrestle with some of the big questions of life. And I, I saw, you know, all over the world in a lot of these uh, spiritual texts, um, this idea of fasting um, and, and the idea of fasting from both food and water and how that can really open, you know, as we hunger and thirst, it opens our heart and our mind and our spirit to other ways of feeding ourselves other than, you know, the physical food and water, and that that was a very important part of our spiritual questing. And um, I'd been reading Siddhartha, you know, sort of a classic example of that journey. And so I went to um, a a creek that I'd hiked into many times before and uh, in a wilderness area in in Mendocino County. And... um, uh, went there to to have a food and water fast. But of course, being young, all I could think about was what was I going to learn and how exciting this was going to be and this marvelous journey. But I hadn't really thought it through what it would be like to actually go through the physical process of not having water and the physical reality of that. Um, and of course, I did bring um, food with me. You know, I had backup plan. And um, so... When I was out 
having this experience on the second day, um, of course, the thirst really settled in. And uh, it's a very long story, and not well, for here, but just briefly going through the the experience. But even of, briefly, I'm going to interrupt okay. you so that we, oh, sorry. because I don't want to interrupt you when you get really into it. Um, we're, I'm here with Osprey Ariel Lake, and she's the author of Uprising for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, offspraioriellake.com. And Ariel is spelled O-R-I-E-L-L-E, offspraioriellake.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Osprey Ariel Lake, and we're talking about reconnecting with nature. Um, and you're telling a story about visiting what you call Vision Creek, and you're fasting, no water and no food, and you're in, what, the second day of it? Yes, I was, uh, I, I was in the second day, and being young in, you know, at the time and not really anticipating what would actually happen at a body level— I, at the sort, toward of towards the evening of that second day, the thirst hit me like I couldn't believe because, of course, at some capacity, you're at the beginning stages of dying. You're having no food, no water, and your body is shutting down. So, you know, you're moving very slowly. And my mouth felt like a piece of leather that had been run over by several trucks and so dry. Um, so um, it had gotten dark already. And I suddenly got the um, whiff of the creek that I was camped by, which I had purposely been there to listen to the beautiful sounds and the poetry of the songs of the the creek going. And um, the next thing I knew was on my hands and my knees in total pitch darkness crawling towards the creek. And... Uh, I know I just had to have water. It was an amazing feeling to just feel like a wild animal that had to have water. And um, again, it's a lengthy story. So in brief, I didn't get there. It was too steep and too dangerous. And I, I spent quite a few hours trying to get down to the water and could not. And finally had to surrender to just being in the thirst. But what happened on the other side of that, you know, not by my own choice. I mean, many people... Um, in a mature way, in a ceremony such as this, would, uh, in a disciplined fashion, be able to, with, you know, go through these different stages. Uh, this was forced upon me in sort of a humorous way because I couldn't get to the water. But on the other side of that, it was very profound because I began to really understand that water is life. And as soon as I had that thought, what water means, not just to me, but to all human beings, to all creatures of life, that water is the foundation of life on earth. And this deep spiritual connection with water began to override the, the difficult moment. And then the rest of the time, 
many, many other things were able to happen. So it was a very profound experience of um, at such a deep embodied level understanding that water is life and how to really respect water. Well, water is becoming uh, something, somewhat of an issue on the planet now. And um, I know that you write, uh, it, 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 water is increasingly, I'm quoting from your book, reflecting our human actions through a multitude of extremes, drought, unseasonable floods, massive glacier melts, rising sea levels, tsunamis. Um, and so, you know, it's almost as if the water itself is reflecting our own way that we've been with the earth itself. Can you speak about that? Yeah, I think, you know, now being very involved in climate change issues, I think we cannot separate out what water is telling us from what's happening with the climate. And what we're seeing is either too much water or too little of it because of the extreme weather events that we're experiencing now and we're sadly going to be experiencing for many years to come. So I think water is telling us a story about reflecting back to us our choices. Um, right now, just as an example, um, in the United States, uh, the U.S. government has a study that's come out that 36 states within the next five years are going to be experiencing extreme water shortages. And we're really not prepared for that. We're not prepared. Um, I work through the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus with women in Africa and India, where climate change is already heavily impacting a lot of communities. And again, they're experiencing either no water or huge floods both which are affecting their crops. And we're seeing this on the international market, what's happening to food prices, because food, the whole food uh, cycle is being affected by what's happening with water. So it's all connected. So when we're talking about water, we're talking about really the essence of life and what happens with water. The other piece, of course, is sea level rise due to um, uh, climate change and the warming of the oceans. Um, I also work now with uh, the Maldives Islands, which is one of the lowest geographical uh, series of islands on the planet. And it was just a few days ago, actually, um, I was talking to the vice president of, of the Maldives. And, you know, they're looking at uh, huge impacts to the point of um, needing to possibly even move the entire population of the Maldives to another country, whether that's Sri Lanka, India or Australia, all of that's in conversation now. Were so, they the ones who had a, um, they did a, a yeah. meeting in scuba gear? Yes, they, they had, the, uh, the the president had set up with uh, his cabinet members a meeting underwater <laughs> with, scuba gear, with scuba gear, and then they were all sitting around tables to, you know, try to get the world's attention how serious this is for island nations, including mm -hmm. their own. Yes. And so what... What is the upside of water? What do we know that we can do? What What are the technologies or the resources we have to help us in this time of water shortage? Well, I think there's a lot of things. I, I think one thing is we need to start respecting water and uh, uh learn how to conserve water. I mean, I always cringe, you know, at these green lawns in areas where there's a lot of drought and we're using up a lot of, you know, water on lawns. Uh, that's just like, we all have our little pet peeves and that's something that I find difficult. I think there's a lot or of Or even practical... washing cars, we feel like we have to have shiny cars. There's just, there's a lot we could do to be more careful um, about using water. 
And uh, I think the other thing that's really something we can all get our hands on is um, in the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, we do actually a course on resilient communities, and we teach how to put in gray water systems so we can actually use the water um, from our homes to water our gardens, and it's really simple to do. Um, there's also uh, creating, um, which is, is also not difficult or expensive technology, to do uh, rainwater harvesting from our roofs. So I think there's a lot of different ways that we can um, look at conserving water, saving water, and the first step is understanding that we need to to protect our waterways and to understand that water is precious. That's always where it begins, is understanding that there's a need to pay attention to water. And I think in the U.S., that's not something in many uh, states that is really prominent in people's mind. I mean, there's certain states right now in heavy droughts, and believe me, they're aware. They know. Farmers know. Well, we're even, like, we're, we're in coming into... Um, midwinter in California, and we're in drought. Yeah, there's no rain. We're in drought. We, every day we look at the weather, and there is no, there's a sprinkle here and there. There is no snowpack in the Sierra. There, And we know in California, at least in Northern California, because we don't really ship our water in from Colorado like they do in Southern California, we know what it is to be in drought. We're, we're, we're measuring every little teaspoon of water. So um, this, is, this is coming home to us right now. It is. I think in the next few years, it's going to become very, very apparent, a lot of the choices that we've made and how it's going to come around. And I think water is going to be the biggest reflection, if you will, of our choices. I mean, right now, uh, the United States is approximately 4% of the world's population, but we have emitted about 20% of the carbon emissions into the world. And it's showing up in these extreme weather events. And so I think we're in for a big, you know, rocky ride. And that's why there's so much talk of resilient communities and changing our story, because that's what's going to be needed. Well, uh, my question then is, how do we, those of us who, who are concentrating on this, who are educating ourselves in this area, who are having conversations and dialogues with others, who are joining in our communities. There, There's that whole group of people. But then there are many, many, I mean, a much larger population who's who, who are not thinking about this at all. What kind of I mean, is it everybody has got to come to the realization? What What is the tipping point with it where how many of us are needed to understand this, to be able to change the story? Isn't that the question of the hour? Isn't that the question of the hour? I think that I derive a lot of hope from the fact that, one, so many young people are awake and are active. And in so many different ways, you know, whether it's um, in their universities having courses and groups organized around climate change or shutting down coal-fired power plants in their communities, all kinds of campaigns. 350.org was started by a lot of young people and now, you know, taken the country at many levels. So I find this, you know, I do a lot of international work. I find this all over the world. Young people, I think, are, in fact, very aware of the need to change our narrative um, in every aspect from our lifestyle choices to 
our politics to our community values. And so I think this is really what's happening is that uh, the young people in some ways are, are a big hope for the future. And I think it's something where we just need to, in our local communities, do the work and those who are awake do the work and others come to it. Um, I, I think that uh, there's times to stand up to those who are in, let's say, being climate deniers. And there are definite times to stand up and protest, which I think has been very important in the U.S. across the country, especially in the last few years. It's pretty exciting what's happening. The, the um, bottom is shaking the top, and I think that's excellent. So I think this is part of the change that we're seeing. At the same time, we need to really focus our energy on solutions and what we're doing, because you can spend a lot of time, time to convince people. And I think, like I say, there's times to have those fights, but I think it's equally important to get busy with the transformation itself because um, I love that quote from Bucky Fuller where I'm not going to say it exactly, but basically he says, you know, the best thing you can do is start building the reality you want and other people will come along. Put your energy there. And I, I really think that's important as well. Yes, and I'm in in that vein, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, um, throw a better party, <laughs> you know what I mean, that that other quote, throw a better party. I mean, it's like to, to really understand the joy in this work, too, and it's important not to get all bogged down with how terrible everything is, but to remember that this is a joy and to, to imagine the future in, in a good way, and that will keep us, keep us hooked in to the energy we need to make this change. Absolutely, because a lot of what we're talking about are actually things we want. A lot of us want to live more locally. Most of us want our food, you know, to be organic food, locally grown, and help out our neighbors. Most of us want to understand our watersheds. Where does our water come from? Where does our energy come from? Um, how do we really have our, our energy come from a, a more localized source, not owned by utility companies and big corporations? So, you know, getting to know our neighbors more, knowing how to do things that our grandparents did, how to can food, how to sew. I mean, actually, some of where we're going is a more joyful, connected, earth-related, people-related world. So I think that's important to keep in mind as well. I'm here with Osprey Ariel Lake. She's the author of Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. And my name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Osprey Ariel Lake. 
and we're talking about being intimate with nature and why that's important. Let's talk about um, listening to the indigenous people and their voices and what they have to say. And can you talk about the importance of that? I think it's very, very important for us all over the world. Um, and indigenous peoples, I think, um, are holding so many keys in their ancestral knowledge and in the way that they have been living for thousands and thousands of years in balance with nature and um, what we call today, you know, sustainable living. They have been doing and practicing and thinking about for generation after generation after generation. And um, I do want to acknowledge also it being a very tragic story, too, because um, all over the world and certainly here in the United States, we have quite a um, horrific track record and history with what we have done to indigenous peoples in this country and still do. Um, we've done some work through my organization on some of the different reservations, and it's heartbreaking what still goes on. So I, 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 I want to speak beautifully and powerfully about Indigenous people, but I also really want to acknowledge the responsibility we have to care for these communities, protect these communities, and undo great wrongs that have occurred over many, many generations. So I think Indigenous people are holding an incredible wisdom that we need to really pay attention to and listen to and learn the stories. Um, in my book, I do go through a lot of history that took place in where I grew up in Mendocino County and also Humboldt County. And it was so enriching to me personally to know, one, that they're still here. I did some work on the uh, Round Valley Indian Reservation as a young person, helped do trails with the uh, Indian youth there and just getting to know the indigenous people in my own region. And I've talked to so many people who say, we didn't even know they're still here. So there's a problem right there. It's really understanding indigenous people are here. They're carrying their traditions and songs, and we need to really support them. Um, one thing that really touched me is learning about the Pomo Indians on the California coast and in the Ukiah area here, and the way that they cared for the land, and um, particularly around the different materials they used for basket weaving, and how they would really cultivate the land. And uh, there's a wonderful book out uh, by a woman named Kat Anderson, I believe her name is, and it's called um, Cultivating the Wild, Tending the Wild. And in it, you really learn about how um, before white settlers came here, the land was not quote-unquote wild. Every area was attended to so that the grasses grew in a certain way. You couldn't even tell because it was done in such a manner that it really was completely in sync with the natural systems and the natural rhythms. And that deep understanding about our human place, um, our human place in nature and how we can live in a harmonious interchange and relationship, I think is very profound uh, and a tremendous gift that Indigenous people give us. You give an example in your book of the Ua tribe in Colombia, I think they're called, and where they stood up to an oil company. They said, we would rather commit suicide, die massively, than to let you drill on our lands. And they were able to stop the drilling, which would have just devastated the land. Absolutely. And it's, it's um, a very profound story. And it really speaks to the fact that um, indigenous people teach us that we are nature. And so if you're going to take our land or destroy our land, you are killing us. 
And so they made a stand. And fortunately, a lot of uh, environmental organizations and NGOs got behind them and made sure the media heard their powerful position that they would rather commit suicide as a tribe than be killed off in this other fashion. This is one of the wonderful things about the Internet and about being connected and having people do their own media. They can now, with just their little phones, they can make videos and just transmit it worldwide immediately. Nothing is happen- can happen in isolation like it used to. Now, and we're and we're going to need to keep protecting that, right? That's right. <laughs> Say that again because that's very, very important. It is right now. We need to make sure um, our government stays out of uh, the way that we continue to have free access and open access to the internet, and that's something we need to be vigilant about. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about also. There's there's a quote that that I had not read before, but that you found this wonderful quote from one of our forefathers here in the U.S., uh, from Thomas Paine, and he recognized long ago at the dawn of the country's birth, he said, all the great laws of society are laws of nature. Wow, what a statement. Can you say something about that? Yes, when I, I came across that, I was so deeply touched by that and the foresight of that. And um, I think, again, you know, speaking of indigenous people, but as modern day people now, looking at how we want to govern ourselves, many times we do not include nature and the natural world into our governance. And I think that it's showing in a very negative way that we can't keep having laws and um, governance that excludes the voice of nature and the natural cycles, um, that we are one and the same. And there's um, a very interesting uh, work going on now that has been developing, I think, over the last 30 years um, that involves the rights of nature. And I don't want to give the whole history of that, but I'll just say that one of the things I think is very exciting about this rights of nature work is it is a component that can really help us move back towards a nature um, sense and a nature foundation in our governance because what it does is it really turns current laws on their head because right now when we look at environmental laws, we see that they still treat nature as property instead of a rights-bearing entity. And what Rights of Nature does is it says, no, we're not going to keep just looking at nature as property, but as a rights-bearing entity, that it has the rights to flourish, that mountains have rights, forests have rights, and that we can actually have them stand up in court and be protected. And I think this is a very new and exciting field. And in fact, it's something that the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, we have a whole program around educating about rights of nature and how communities can adopt rights of nature laws and use them to protect their local waterways, their local forests. And um, actually, in quite a few communities, over 100 in the United States now, there have been ordinances at a local community level where rights of nature legislation has actually helped communities protect their local regions. So, for example, let's say in strip mining where they they just actually take the tops of mountains off, have there been some success stories in Um, stopping that? I'm not sure 
specifically about that point, but I do know that in cases of fracking, there has been success stories. Oh, that's a big thing right now because that's going. And so say what fracking is. What you're doing is that it's basically going through shale, which is a, a rock, and you're extracting natural gas out from the shale. And huge amounts of water are used in the process. And also the water itself, the, the process itself goes through the water table. So all of the water in the region is being affected by this process. And that's why you see these um, films and stories about people turning on their tap water and they you know, can basically set it on fire because there's gas in the water. So it's polluting the water. So, um, and now there's also some associations. I, I don't know the exact science behind this and, and how many, um, you know, the different facts behind this, but there seems to be an association between fracking and an increase in earthquakes in these same regions. So definitely not a good story here. Yeah. Um, but anyways, there can't, these rights of nature laws, yes, can be implemented in this case, um, in these cases. And also um, in 2008, the country of Ecuador was uh, the first country to actually adopt into their constitution uh, rights of nature legislation. So it's also being looked at at a constitutional level. Um, Bolivia has now also done the same thing. So it's an idea whose time has come, and I think we're going to hear a lot more about it. What can you tell us? I know that you, you work with the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus. You're the founder of it, is that correct? And so what is that, and what is the work that it does? Uh, the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus is based in the Bay Area, and we work nationally. And the Bay Area is uh, San Francisco. San Francisco, excuse me, San Francisco Bay Area. And um, we work nationally and internationally uh, around issues concerning climate because we found that um, one of the big leverage points around climate change is actually women. We didn't start out being gender specific, but as we looked at the research, we found that as an example, um, whether you're in developed countries or um, in developing countries, when you empower women, you can deeply affect things like population stabilization, which we need, economies improve when you empower women in these communities, environmental standards improve. So women are a huge leverage point. They're also the ones being the most negatively impacted by climate change. So we also need to really support them. Um, you know, the women I work with in Africa and India, some of them are walking literally in their communities two to four, some people even say up to six hours a day just to get their daily water needs because of the droughts. Um, we need to address these urgent matters. Um, so we provide um, access to trainings where women can learn about uh, rainwater collection and uh, different systems that they can start, you know, very close to the ground, how they can do different kinds of farming, um, what they can do about, as an example, building solar uh, cookers so that they're not having to walk miles and miles and cut down their forest. And what is the website for that? Um, that is, uh, you can go to, we're just actually changing our, our website. It will be up and running in about two weeks. It's um, iwecc.org. It's just been a pleasure being with you today, Osprey. Thank you so much. It's been a really honor to be with you today, too, and thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. I've been speaking with Osprey Ariel Lake, and you can go to our website, Osprey, O-S-P-R-E-Y, Oriel, O-R-I-E-L-L-E, lake.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. She's the author of Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3424. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.